Hello and welcome to Asia Stream, where we track, report, and analyze the issues and interests of the world's largest region. I am Waj Khan, Nikkei Asia's digital editor here in New York City. Today's episode, Pakistan's Prime Minister Problem. From cricket superstar and international playboy, to a jet-setting philanthropist, to a populist Islamist prime minister, Imran Khan's ascent to the highest office in Pakistan has been a remarkable case study in professional evolution. Now, he's in a fight for political survival as he faces a vote of no confidence, which could happen as early as sometime next week, depending on the whims of parliament. If the legislature votes against him, Pakistan's 22nd prime minister will be removed from office. So, how did Imran Khan get here? 25 years ago, in his first election, Khan managed to win just one seat in Pakistan's National Assembly. In the last election in 2018, he finally attained the highest prize, but through a fragile coalition. However, the 68-year-old Khan didn't just become Pakistan's Prime Minister all by himself. Over the years, he made questionable alliances, unsavory but necessary to survive in Pakistan's dirty, raucous politics. He teamed up with hardline religious parties. He aligned with corrupt tycoons. He worked with notorious turncoats. But as he harnessed the power of social media, like no Pakistani politician had before, to construct his populist brand, which he then sold to millions of urban and young voters, the biggest bargain he struck was with the mighty Pakistan army and its Praetorian intelligence services. The Pakistani military is not a typical fighting force. For one, it's nuclear armed, has fought three wars and countless skirmishes with India and interfered for decades in Afghanistan through proxy war. It has hedged in the war on terror, partnering with the US on one side but supporting the Taliban on the other. Today, it finds itself out of favor with Washington, but a rather important player for China, which sees it as a partner to counter Delhi. Thus, the army in Pakistan has for years been called a deep state within the state, a geopolitical entity, but also a political animal, which has ruled Pakistan directly or indirectly since independence, taking the fight to its external enemies, but also meddling in the internal affairs of the country. However, political realities in Pakistan's robust civil society have forced the military to shy away from conducting coups of late. Rather, Democrats, activists and media have forced the army to adopt a new strategy of leading from behind through the likes of Imran Khan. But like so many who came before him, Khan's time with the military seems to have run out. Some of his predecessors have been imprisoned, some have been exiled, some have been assassinated, and some have been executed. In the 75 years since independence, not one of Pakistan's 21 prime ministers who came before Khan have finished a full term in office. Now, as he faces a vote of no confidence and a military which seems to have abandoned him, what future awaits Imran Khan? And more importantly, Pakistan and South Asia. We've got quite the show. Bad up for a very sticky wicket. You're listening to The Sound of Asia, streaming in your ear. From Nikkei Asia, this is Asia Stream. Now joining us in the studio to get us started with an intro into the man at the center of all this is Asia Stream correspondent, Monica Hunter-Hart. Monica, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So, full disclaimer, I grew up in Karachi in the 80s. So, I came of age watching Khan's victories in the cricket ground and hearing wild stories about his scandalous high society adventures with movie stars and rock stars. But please give us an overview of the man for people who didn't grow up surrounded by Khan's face in the tabloids and on TV. So, Waj, as you know, Khan was a celebrity decades before he ever became prime minister, as far back as the 70s. Imran Khan has lived many lives. Cricket superstar, playboy, politician. Pakistan didn't have rock stars, but they had Imran Khan. 
His fame started in his cricket days. He grew up between Lahore and England, gaining acclaim for his skills at the game while at Oxford and also garnering a reputation as a jet-setting sex symbol. He was known for breaking the hearts of stars and heiresses around the world, mm. as well as setting sporting records. He retired from cricket after his greatest sporting achievement, which was victory at the World Cup in 1992. It was the only time Pakistan ever won that championship. You don't have to rub it in, Monica. I'm just saying it was a significant milestone that made Khan an even more significant figure. Of course. He used the power of that against-all-odds victory to propel himself into politics. He also made even more of a name for himself by launching into philanthropy and building important infrastructure for battling cancer in Pakistan. So he goes from playing cricket to trying to fight cancer to then, in 1996, entering politics. Mm. He starts his own party, the PTI, or the Movement for Justice, which vowed to fight corruption. But he remained on the margins of politics for more than a decade, until finally and controversially, he built up enough momentum and support to eventually be elected prime minister in 2018. I think one entertaining way to track his political career is actually through his nicknames. That's actually true. So in the early years, I remember he used to be called Im the Dim. I've heard he didn't like that particular nick. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think he would have. That was when he was sort of seen as gentle and naive. Right. It was back when he had a more humanistic philosophy. He was against the military dictator Musharraf, against nuclear weapons, and often supported minority rights. Mm. Much later, he started openly supporting the Taliban, so he was Taliban Khan. I remember the Taliban Khan days when he was proposing formal relations with uh, the Afghan insurgents, but now he's called U-Turn Khan. Yeah, I think that one's kind of funny. It's because of all of his policy reversals. His politics have definitely shifted towards the right. Now he embraces a kind of conservative populism. He's also evolved into a hardcore nationalist who argues that Pakistanis for too long have felt themselves inferior to Western culture, even slaves to it. One can sympathize with that argument, right up until he pairs it with really extreme comments like calling Osama bin Laden a martyr, or suggesting that Afghanistan finally broke free of the shackles of slavery when the Taliban took over. When you become a mental slave, then remember that mental slavery is worse than actual slavery. It is more difficult to break the chains of mental slavery. In Afghanistan, they have just broken the chains of slavery. It is quite the turnaround for someone who used to hang out with the likes of Nelson Mandela and uh, Princess Diana. Diana, but Monica, let's pivot to the military for a quick minute here because they're a crucial part of the story, right? I mean, the mighty Pakistan army has always been involved in some level of national politics, recurrently staging coups and directly ruling the country as recently as 2008. Now, their support for Imran Khan over the years was seen as one of the reasons he was able to become prime minister in the first place. Of course, we also have to note that Khan's win was contested by the opposition, which instead of calling him prime minister-elect in the early days, started calling him prime minister-select. While his supporters have been celebrating across the country, his victory has been overshadowed by accusations of voting irregularities. Now, the military and Khan have tended to align on many things. Supporting the Taliban, for example, is one of those things. But if the military was still supporting Khan right now, he probably would be fairly insulated from the opposition's bid to remove him. But that isn't the case anymore. No, it's not. The army seems to have withdrawn its support for Khan. In terms of why, well, it's both about internal politics and great power politics. Internally, there's a bunch of palace intrigue. The military sees Khan as interfering in its highly sensitive hierarchy. In the larger scheme of things, the military has close connections to the U.S. and is frustrated with how extreme some of Khan's anti-West rhetoric and actions have become. And one of the most blatant recent examples of that was Khan's visit to Russia on the exact day that Russia invaded Ukraine. Guess who is visiting Moscow? Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan. But the timing could not have been worse. Many people looking at it would look at the optics of the Pakistani Prime Minister sitting with Vladimir Putin and beaming to the cameras. Pakistan is facing pressure to issue a condemnation of Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Khan and his foreign office haven't condemned Russia's invasion. And beyond all of that, Khan is also under fire for failing to fix Pakistan's crippling debt crisis and not even making a dent to fight the country's inflation, which is the highest in South Asia, or even delivering on his campaign promise of fighting corruption. Mm. Instead, he's mostly just been targeting his own political opponents. 
So all of that brings us to Khan's potential ouster this week. What is happening in Pakistan is Imran Khan on his way out. Imran Khan is facing a no-confidence motion. But unlike earlier bouncers in his political career, the former cricketer is struggling to duck this one. Well, it looks like it's going to be a messy few days. Monica Hunter-Hart, thanks for catching us up on the basics before we move into our deeper dive. Sure thing, Wash. 220 million people, one of the world's youngest populations. Rising inflation, rising debt, rising extremism. A complicated and corrupt multi-party system, a very tough neighborhood, and nuclear weapons. Pakistan is not an easy place to govern, much less when you're facing a vote of no confidence. To help us investigate Pakistan's perpetual prime minister problem, I am joined by an esteemed group of Pakistan watchers from Washington, D.C. First up is uh, Madhya Afzal. She's a fellow in the foreign policy program at Brookings and the author of Pakistan Under Siege, Extremism Society in the State. She has previously worked as an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Maryland. Madhya, welcome to Asia Stream. Thanks for having me. And then there's Uzair Yunus, who is now becoming an old Asia Stream hand in his second appearance. To remind everyone, he is the director of the Pakistan Initiative at the Atlantic Council's South Asia Center in Washington, D.C. He's also the manager for engagement and strategy at the Miri, an innovation firm helping companies align their business competencies with public good needs. And he's the host of one of my favorite Pakistanomy podcasts. Pleasure to be here, Raj. All right. And then there's, of course, last but not least, there's Asfandeh Armir. He's a senior expert at the U.S. Institute of Peace and affiliate with Stanford's uh, Center for International Security and Cooperation. He is one of my go-to sources when it comes to understanding South Asian terrorism. Asfandeh Armir, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Vijayat. All right. So uh, this is going to be literally the Shakespearean three-act tragedy with all three of you. What's happening? Why is it happening? And what's going to happen? Madhya, I'm going to start with you. Procedurally, please lay it out for us. Tell us who the players are. There's Khan, of course. There's the military establishment. There's the opposition. And then there's the 220-odd million people in Pakistan. Give us the 101 here real quickly. What's the issue here and what's at stake? There are a number of moving sort of factors at play. Um, the first is that uh, there are these dissenting lawmakers from within Khan's own party uh, that um, have indicated their frustration with him. Um, then there is the matter of the allied parties, uh, three of them in particular, uh, which have also indicated their frustration with, with Khan's government. And these allied parties basically are separate parties, but they are part of the ruling party coalition. You know, in Pakistan, the majority party, the, the ruling party basically comes into power with such, uh, you know, a weak plurality that they need coalition partners to form a majority. And so that's where these allied parties come in. So uh, three of them have threatened uh, to basically move away. So there's that matter. We we don't quite know where these, these folks will fall right now because they're sort of still dithering. Um, then there's the matter of the Supreme Court, which Khan's government has asked to give an opinion on whether dissenting ruling party lawmakers can actually um, cast... A, whether they can actually cast a vote um, against Khan uh, in the National Assembly. Uh, Khan's party contends that there is, um, that the constitution does not allow them to do so. The lawyers uh, and constitutional experts contend that it does. So there's a Supreme Court. And then, of course, underlying all of this um, is the matter of Khan's relationship with the establishment, which is really sort of, you know, Pakistan speak for the, the military. Uh, and that relationship seems to have cooled uh, in recent uh, weeks and months. Uh, and there is a question of sort of the establishment remaining neutral and where this ends up going, um, we we think uh, will be defined by where the establishment is leaning. Wow, that's um, that's a long menu um, of players uh, over there. But uh, I'm going to let you start with the opposition here and the parliament, um, Uzair. Uh, Madhya has laid it out for us, but I want you to pull on that particular political strand 
of uh, no confidence motions. Now, from what I understand, no confidence motions um, usually happen over over major policy disagreements, or there's a major bid for reform and that goes south. But Pakistan has faced, in the last couple of decades, Pakistan has faced more indeed, one in 1989 and one in 2006, both have failed. So tell us, from the parliamentary perspective, what went south here? So I think there's a couple of things that were not set up right for him. Many people refer to his government as hybrid regime, although I would contend that almost every government in Pakistan, democratically elected or not, has been a hybrid of sorts where it has been uh, brought to power either by the tacit or the implicit support of the military. Khan, when he came to power, is perhaps the weakest um, prime minister to be elected by parliament um, since the end of the dictatorship under General Musharraf in 2007-8. And so he had odds stacked stacked against him. And I think over the last three years, the fundamental mistake he's made is twofold. One is that he has not empowered parliament. Um, There's the famous uh, opening speech, so to speak, that he gave in parliament and the opposition hounded him um, and that left a sour taste in his mouth. And while his party was uh, promising that they would have a monthly question and answer session, such as what happens in England, um, he really failed to empower parliament and make parliament his own dominant battlefield, so to speak. Um, the second mistake that he made over the last three and a half years was he did not keep his enemies as close as he should have, including those uh, within the Pakistan Tariq Saf or his allied party. So instead of dealing with them and building a relationship from a position of strength, now Khan finds himself uh, being abandoned by either dissenters within his party or, op- or allies who are engaging in negotiations with the opposition. And what Khan is quickly finding out that is that he does not have the strength of the parliament or his own party behind him to sort of stand up and say, I am still prime minister and I'm confident in my victory. Um, And I think being the weakest prime minister to be elected in recent years really is a major handicap that should not be underestimated. However, I would also say that in Pakistan's history, uh, neither a prime minister has completed a five-year term, uh, nor has he or she ever been ousted in a vote of no confidence. So either way, um, this will be a historic moment in Pakistan's floundering and flawed democracy. Um, But Khan ultimately will find that even if he survives, the fact that he has not empowered parliament uh, will be his greatest weakness moving forward. Aswander Amir, this one's for you. Did he really need to engage parliament when, of course, he had uh, 650,000 uniformed Pakistan military soldiers, sailors, and airmen behind him? Of course, the Pakistani military is the sixth largest in the world. It's nuclear armed. Out of that, the Pakistan army is the dominant influential institution. But Khan came in. He was quite tight with the Pakistani military and one particular man, uh, uh, comes to mind, of course, General Kamar Javed Bajwa, the 16th Army Chief of Pakistan. They were quite tight. They were hanging out a lot together. Uh, they were seen at military parades together. They met a lot. Um, they, according to insider information, they were getting along fine. So how has this break with the military, Bajwa's still around, there hasn't been a change of the guard. How has this break with the military happened now? Why has, as Madhya was saying, why has the military lost interest? Why has it cooled on Khan? Vaj, I, I agree. I think Khan's uh, predicament is inseparable from his uh, controversial rise to power in the 2018 election. I think it was manipulated to ensure Khan's victory by the Pakistani military. And as you note, after the election, the military uh, was keen on helping him out. It played a major part uh, in helping Khan consolidate his gr- uh, grip uh, over power. Despite being weak inside the parliament, uh, the military helped him uh, in cobbling a winning uh, parliamentary coalition and managing uh, the media, especially parts of the media which were critical of Khan and which would point out the military's role in helping him um, uh, gain power. And then passing uh, you know, critical legislative votes, even there, the military and the intelligence services uh, played played a key part. Uh, but then, you know, I think starting 2020, late 2020, early 2021, we uh, we get indications that the relationship 
between the military and Khan uh, was uh, was sovereign. It was going south. And as you note, the key person, key interlocutor in that equation, in that relationship was the army chief. Um, the, the the army chief, Kamar Bajwa, he was initially unhappy with um, with some domestic political things that Khan did. Um, he's, this is now mostly on the record. The army chief was unhappy with Khan's pick uh, for the chief minister of Pakistan's largest province, Punjab. Uh, Bajwa really disliked that that man, still dislikes that person, wanted Khan to replace him, but Khan refused to do that. But the bigger problem appears to be, and I think this is still uh, uh, being explored in the commentary on Pakistan, um, and that was over foreign policy. Uh, now, ironically, despite leading an institution which has traditionally been a source of hawkish foreign policy uh, preferences, in Pakistan, you know, the army chief Bajwa seems to have wanted a more conciliatory approach towards the United States and India. Uh, and on the U.S., this was in the backdrop of the, the war in Afghanistan and, and the war coming to a close and Bajwa wanting to start uh, things afresh, um, you know, really reset that relationship. And then on India, it appears that Bajwa wanted to bring the level of hostility down. He's He's had a back channel with the Indians in which he's made some concessions, like sort of reining in some of Pakistani proxy elements in uh, operating in parts of uh, Indian Kashmir and other parts of India. He's really brought the violence levels down, or so he claims to his Indian uh, Indian interlocutors. Khan, on the other hand, uh, appears to have wanted a more populist foreign policy. He's leaned into traditional anti-American and anti-Indian narratives uh, in Pakistan. And that has managed to sow major discord uh, between the two. Ultimately, however, where this relationship appears to have snapped is on the eve of the appointment of the, the chief of intelligence last year. Um, Khan uh, liked this last chief of intelligence um, uh, that he had. His name is General Faiz, Faiz Hamid. Uh, Khan wanted to retain him. He'd, uh, he appears to want to replace him with Bajwa later in the year, but Bajwa wanted uh, wanted Faz gone um, and Khan and Bajwa sparred over over that appointment. Ultimately, Bajwa had his way, but it seems like he's not for, forgotten uh, Khan's insistence on, on retaining retaining Faz. And, and Baj, really quickly, if I may add, um, on, on Asandiar's point on India in particular, it's also the fact that the, the way decision making has occurred under this government led by Khan has been a constant source of embarrassment. And I'll just give you one example. In early 2021, uh, the Commerce Ministry says Pakistan is about to begin buying Indian cotton and sugar. Um, and at that time, sugar prices were escalating in Pakistan. So it made sense. Um, but then the prime minister backtracked on this. And those have been sources. They're fleeting moments, but they indicate and uh, sort of evidence that frustration has been mounting because there are constant source of embarrassment, not only for Pakistan as a country and as a government, uh, but also for the military establishment, because they're the ones who allegedly brought him to power. Right. Well, his impulsiveness has been a question mark, Uzair, but I want to bring it back to um, uh, Madiha real quickly, because after Asfandiar's um, drawout, uh, especially of that last bit, Madiha, the palace intrigue, um, why is it that the appointment of one man in this, yes, it is the perfect storm. There's different factors in play here, as you pointed out. But the appointment of one general in particular seems to be really uh, ready to roil the world's sixth largest country into political mayhem. Uh, draw it out for us within the larger context, if you can. Is that what this is all about? Is this about personal relationships between the brass and Khan? Well, uh, General Faiz Hamid, uh, the the former DG ISI is known to be loyal to Khan. And, uh, you know, the, the contention is that he did, in fact, help in sort of the behind the scenes wheeling and dealing that helped Khan come to power. You know, th now three and a half years ago, sort of just post that election, I wrote a piece uh, titled, uh, did, did Imran Khan win a dirty election, as some were calling it, or um, a real mandate? And I think the question, you know, there, 
is little doubt that there was interference, right? There was interference. Uh, there was interference in terms of getting independent lawmakers to come over to Khan's side. Um, this kind of horse trading, uh, you know, uh, people moving from one political party to the other, depending on where the political winds happen to be sort of um, blowing, is something that is a given, unfortunately, in Pakistani politics. So, you know, there was interference. On the other hand, I think Khan does have a popular base, right? His populist kind of brand of politics does appeal to a, you know, a segment in Pakistan's um, uh, population, in particular the youth. The story is one of a combination of the popularity of Khan, yes, but, but interference uh, as well, uh, which led to this kind of on the same page uh, regime, if you will, uh, where the civilian and military sides appear to be on the same page. Now, many of us had said at that point, right, they can start off on the same page, but at some point, the cracks are going to start emerging. And we saw that repeatedly, of course, since, since 2018, but the, they always, the cracks managed to be papered over by Khan, by Bajwa. Khan's brand of politics, and this has been touched upon in the, in the previous discussion, is an antagonistic one. You know, he's antagonized the opposition. He's antagonized elements of his own party, uh, the leading to the dissenting lawmakers. But he's now also antagonizing, you know, sort of opening up this front in many ways with the military. Uh, just, uh, you know, in recent days, for instance, he said something that many have uh, sort of been shocked at, which is when the military has said that they have they have a neutral stance towards what's going on in politics, he very pointedly, basically, in a speech said, you know, uh, human beings side with good or evil uh, and they side with good, and only animals remain neutral. And that's considered a pointed dig at the military. I'm curious how policy in Pakistan is being framed around um, uh rhetoric, um, appointments, and frankly, ego. But uh, Uzair Yunus, this is about the economy. And you said something about India. Firstly, it's quite strange that an elected prime minister has a harder stance on trade with India uh, versus uh, a general in the Pakistani army. I, I find that quite strange. And I'm wondering what you think of that. But the larger question is, the people of Pakistan, um, uh, have been polled recently. There's a poll by Gallup. Uh, most of people of Pakistan think that the biggest problem in that country is inflation. And that is what the opposition is harping on about as well, that Khan's economic policies have failed. Now, uh, do you think that there is economic justification there? Forget the generals and forget the hubris and forget the high-handedness and the confrontationalism which has come with Khan and his personality. Let's talk about the dollars and cents here. Has he failed economically? And does that does the opposition have a case here to make against him? Well, the opposition most certainly has a case. And I'll just give you a data point to put things in perspective. Since January 2020, um, the rate of food inflation in India has been roughly 7%. Um, and during that same period, uh, food inflation in Pakistan has increased by 23%. So orders of magnitude higher uh, in Pakistan, even though it was India that had a much more tragic experience with the pandemic, uh, even though it were Indian farmers who were protesting and blocking New Delhi um, over proposed reforms. Um, so yes, inflation is a problem. Economic mismanagement is definitely a problem. But we also have to contextualize things over the fact that when Khan came into power, the economy was in a state of crisis. It was had to go to the IMF um, and then the pandemic came around. And at that time, I even wrote that if you measured the early response to the pandemic from just an economic lens, uh, Pakistan's uh, bailout or Pakistan's stimulus plan, so to speak, was perhaps the most aggressive and the most uh, effective uh, in curbing the economic impact of the pandemic in the subcontinent. Um, however, the continuous issues related to Pakistan's economy structurally have not been resolved by this government. Um, in fact, I would argue in in some places they've been exacerbated, for example, through perhaps the longest ever real estate amnesty scheme in the country's history, which allows the rich and the privileged uh, to whitewash their illicit wealth by buying real estate and property. And all of that has been done um, through uh, the argument that this is going to create jobs and promote industry and construction services, etc. However, 
you know within that context if you then say okay is it economic their economic justification to get rid of khan i don't think so i think uh, that if the econo- economy is the only argument then perhaps the opposition and the establishment ought to wait another 12 to 16 months and let the electorate vote um, and see how they judge khan in terms of his overall performance um, there is no major reform that khan has failed at in parliament um, there is nothing that is going on strategically uh, in the economic domain that has caused controversy that says parliament has lost uh, faith in the prime minister. Um, and so I don't think this is about economics. And, and you can see that it's not about economics because ne- none of the opposition parties, including the two largest ones, the Pakistan People's Party and the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, it's not that they've published uh, white papers or policy documents about what is it that they want to fix with the economy after getting rid of Khan. If economy was of so so much importance, then perhaps they should also come out with an agenda that says, here's how they would distinguish themselves from Khan and, and turn the tide uh, when it comes to the economy. Right. And um, as they are from uh, the butter to the guns, uh, really, this is Pakistan, after all. This is the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, which has borders with the following, Afghanistan, Iran, India, China. This is a rough neighborhood. The war on terror isn't over. Afghanistan is still the humanitarian crisis there, as well as the developing um, uh, situation as far as security is concerned. It's still evolving. Just because the war finished on American media or mainstream media doesn't mean that the war is over even. The Taliban are next door. There's been a rise of attacks uh, in Pakistan by groups affiliated with the Afghan Taliban. Um, The Chinese and the Indians are facing off in the Himalayas. If something happens there, like it did in 2020, Pakistan might have to participate in one way or the other. Um, Of course, uh, and let's be honest, this is one of the fastest growing nuclear arsenals in the world, one of uh, the biggest armies in the world pitted against another major army in the world. I'm talking about the Indian military, of course. Um, That ain't over. So there's a a rough neighborhood argument here as well. Um, Please point us in the right direction as far as the spillouts, the security spillout and fallout, uh, where that is going while all of us are watching the parliament, what's happening in the provinces, what's happening on those forward, forward operation bases on the Afghan border and elsewhere? The military, to an extent, uh, pays attention to and cares about its uh, its relationship with, with major powers, um, the US, China, China and, and of course, India. Uh, but the Afghanistan question doesn't uh, get the kind of attention, the kind of serious policy treatment it should. Um, and and it's, that's mostly because um, Afghanistan policy is completely the province of the military. There's no real discussion or debate on alternative paths. Uh, and making matters worse, I, I think the opposition is completely indifferent to the uh, to the challenge that Afgan- Afghanistan poses and the security challenges that Pakistan faces. Uh, I mean, for one, Pakistan now faces um, a revived and more entrenched uh, terrorism problem, substate violence. Uh, the situation in Afghanistan is uh, is greatly contributing uh, to that, uh, and Pakistan certainly has brought that upon itself. This this really terrible scenario by supporting this regime change in Afghanistan, the the rise of the Taliban. But uh, among specific threats, I'd point to. Um, the the challenge of the anti-Pakistan insurgent group, the Tehrike Taliban Pakistan TDP, it has a safe haven in Afghanistan. The, the the Taliban are supportive of the TDP, and the TDP is looking very threatening. It has already stepped up its violence uh, in Pakistan periphery in Pakistan's peripheries, excuse me, and uh, it is starting to impose some real costs on Pakistani security forces. Then there's ISIS. Um, ISIS is around. ISIS in Afghanistan um, uh, undertakes operations in Pakistan as well, and it it, uh, it recently carried out a major attack on a Shia mosque. Uh, and my fear is that ISIS has more mass casualty attacks in the pipeline. Uh, then Pakistan also faces an insurgency 
uh, of ethnic uh, Baloch groups. Uh, you know, these groups are uh, uh, make separatist political claims, um, and um, and they are looking fairly formidable as well. They also carry out suicide bomb attacks. Sometimes, uh, you know, even attack the Chinese, uh, and that threat is also going up. And finally, Pakistan has an extremism. Uh, problem. Uh, but one group that I'd, I'd point to here is, um, you, which, you know, comes from mainland Pakistan, particularly the Punjab province, it's the TLP, the Tehrik-e-Labbaik Pakistan. Uh, and that group has a, a vast infrastructure across the country. Uh, it has some, you know, some real organic support. Uh, and the TLP kind of walks this line of like, of uh, agitational politics, which at times spills into uh, into violence as well, uh, and and the Pakistani military and Pakistani security services are kind of afraid of going after this group uh, in any meaningful way. So Pakistan faces all of these major uh, security challenges that you know I you know I I fear that the opposition certainly doesn't have the answer to, and even the military doesn't appreciate. Uh, in, in in its fullest. Madhya, this one's for you. It seems like Pakistan's um, uh, political brokers uh, have changed. Um, so where do the foreign powers lie? How are they trying to help or not? And then secondly, the larger question, where does foreign policy go from here? Especially considering Imran Khan was the last international leader seen by the side of Vladimir Putin on the eve of that invasion uh, on the 24th of February uh, uh, against Ukraine when that invasion was launched. Khan was there, in fact, defended uh, his uh, uh, trip, saying it was an exciting time to be at the Kremlin. I'm wondering, in the midst of these serious foreign policy pivots, uh, Pakistan has historically not been a big fan of uh, Russia. Uh, how is all of this going to pan out in this fast changing uh, backdrop of um, uh, a global power shift? So I would say in terms of foreign powers and where they stand on the current political crisis, I'd say the U.S. is frankly, the U.S. and Europe are frankly extremely busy uh, with Ukraine right now. So I don't think they really have a clear eye actually on Pakistan and Pakistan's domestic politics. China has been, I think, studiously um, neutral and, and really so when it comes to Pakistan's domestic politics. And in fact, you know, I, all sides in Pakistan, the military and the civilians and sort of each of the civilian parties have, um, civilian political parties have a close relationship with China. I, so I would say that they would be neutral on this. And really, this is, you know, what's happening in Pakistan in terms of foreign policy. There are no outside powers playing a role, much as Khan is trying to pin this on on the West, you know, sort of this is a foreign conspiracy. That is not what's happening. Everything that's happening is internal. Khan has embraced this independent foreign policy, which uh, you know, basically saying, look, we're not taking sides here. We want good relationships with all countries, China, Russia, the U.S. There's a question about whether that is possible and in an increasingly sort of a fraught geopolitical climate. But the fact of the matter is that Khan visited China, visited Beijing um, for the Olympics, which were boycotted uh, by the West in a diplomatic boycott. He and Vladimir Putin visited uh, Beijing for those Olympics. Then later that month, of course, as you mentioned, he was seen uh, with Putin coincidentally that day because this was a long planned visit. You know, and on the other hand, we have a U.S. president who for 14 months hasn't called Imran Khan. So Putin called Khan three times since August and Khan was seen with him in February. You know, we know Khan met Xi Jinping uh, in February, and and you know there hasn't been outreach from the Biden administration to Khan, uh, though diplomatic engagements with the U.S. continue at other levels. So there has been a relative cold shoulder uh, coming from the U.S. Uh, at the top level. So what that leaves is actually, while Pakistan says it wants an independent foreign policy, what it ends up looking like is you, you know Pakistan embracing Russia and China, and not the not the West even though, you know, part of this is a response 
to uh, a cold shoulder that Khan has been receiving from the West. That being said, you know, Khan did not attend a democracy summit that he was invited to in December, partially maybe because of the phone call not coming through, partially maybe because China didn't want him to. Um, and so that doesn't end up looking like an independent foreign policy. That ends up looking like Pakistan is, is siding with China. Um, so that is something the military cannot be happy about, right? You know, the, the military wants Pakistan to have, uh, you know, a good relationship with the U.S. Uh, and so, you know, the military may be fine with Pakistan's relationships with Russia and China, but not at the expense of the relationship with the U.S. And I think that is playing a bit of a role here. The, the rhetoric that is coming from, from Khan, uh, I'm sure is not going over well, for instance, with the Biden administration. One thing I will note is that Khan had, in the last two years of the Trump administration, uh, you know, a great relationship with the U.S. because he had personally hit it off uh, with Trump uh, from uh, sort of the, the 2019 um, visit that he made uh, to Washington. So I think th- there are these dynamics at play. His stance towards the West is not... Uh, immutable. I think it can change depending on how he's dealt with. Ozair Yunus, this is the perfect storm. There's an economic problem. There's an opposition problem. There's a, a, a military problem. It's the perfect storm uh, when you're facing one of the world's most raucous parliaments, one of the world's um, hardest uh, military establishments, and uh, one of the world's highest inflation rates. Uh, where would you put your finger? Which factor is really, really going to matter in the next few days as this vote of no confidence rolls out? What really is going to weigh in the most? Um, I think over the next few uh, days, um, the key factor eventually will be the ability of the prime minister himself to sort of put his ego in check, um, to make the concessions and the compromises that almost every politician and almost every prime minister in Pakistan has had to make um, and come to some level of gentleman's agreement with the chief of army staff over the path forward. Um, I think even if he makes those concessions and survives, he will be a weak prime minister who will uh, face a very daunting 12 to 18 months ahead of elections. And I think uh, ultimately in all of this, no matter how this Game of Thrones unfolds, the ultimate loser will be Pakistan and the millions of households um, that have been struggling uh, first through a twin deficit crisis in 2018, then through the pandemic and now through rising inflation that just uh, does not seem to want to go away. And in fact, I did not mention this earlier, but Pakistan is facing a wheat crisis in the coming weeks and months. And so more inflation is around the corner. So I think uh, no matter where this ends up going, we're in for a roller coaster of a ride. As Amir, as far as the second war on terror is concerned, play this out for us. By the time this podcast comes out, Imran Khan may or have lost his seat as the country's 22nd prime minister. What does that mean for the 650,000 man army, which is engaged in what you are currently calling this second war on terror? And what happens in the regional uh, uh, security game? The political disturbance in Islamabad is going to distract the the military even even further. Um, the military is controversial enough uh, in in Pakistan, and if the crisis continues, I think uh, there will be even more questions about the role of the military, and those questions will not just be asked by elites, but also by by common people on the street. I think even they will ask questions as to the role that General Bajwa has has played, or you know, or uh, people in in his inner circle have played, and that will make this um, this upcoming uh, fight uh, or you know war on 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 terror moniker. You know, I don't like that, but but let's let's just run with it. The second war on terror, how the military approaches it, uh, I think you know a distracted military will uh, give these militants more space. Uh, and will really allow them to to sort of dictate their terms. I think the situation in Afghanistan is especially critical. This morning, we we heard that the Taliban have decided to continue their ban on girls' education. They're not okay with girls going to to school, and so 
I think the Taliban are, are going to become a bigger problem for the international community. And, you know, Pakistan being their most important ally is, uh, is going to f- face more pressure, more asks from the international community. And if the generals and the political leaders are busy with their internal political squabbles, uh, you know, I think that problem is going to be even more complicated to handle and, and solve. And then amid all of this, this strategic rivalry is going to play out. I, I think um, uh, we are at a, at a crossroads of sorts on where a great power competition goes. Um, I think Pakistan should, should be paying more attention to uh, where the major powers are at, what kind of choices they're making. I don't think Pakistan has quite... Um, Played out uh, the implications of its uh, of its attempted alignment uh, with the Russians. Uh, I don't think Pakistan is truly appreciating the costs of its uh, uh, of its enduring alignment with the Chinese. I think you know if the competition really picks up, which I suspect it will over the next twelve to twenty four months, and 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 Pakistani elites are not paying attention to that. I think Pakistan is going to suffer on that account as well. That's a hell of a crystal ball, Asfandiyar Mir. Before I let all three of you go, 30 seconds. I know this is difficult, but it must be asked. 30 seconds, Madhya Afzal, for our listeners. Is this, meaning Khan's ouster, is this going to be a good thing, a bad thing, or none of the above? Something else for the people of Pakistan and beyond. For the people of Pakistan, you know, the constant instability in its democracy is what has failed to deliver. Uh, and, you know, I've written about this starting in 1988, essentially, you know, we have not had a prime minister completing their five-year term in office. The electoral process basically is not valued as the factor that can actually vote out prime ministers, parties that are not performing, and it's always something else that comes in the way. So at this point, I think we should be clear whether Khan stays or goes, the Pakistani people are losing um, because of the built-in instability into the political system and the fact that the establishment continues to play a role in uh, driving that instability. Was there Yunus? I think it's most definitely a bad thing. I agree with Madiha that this this constant struggle and strife in Pakistan's uh, elite captured political economy is is leading to a situation where the country has gone from being having a higher GDP per capita than China in 1990 uh, to being a global basket case. Um, and I think uh, the political elites in Pakistan, as well as the military elites in the country, are doing a disservice and injustice to the millions of Pakistani citizens who have ambitions and aspirations to be globally competitive and relevant. Um, let's remember the fact that this is a very young country. The majority of the population is under 30 years old. Um, and so this round of instability uh, is only the latest example of the crisis in Pakistan's political economy. Um, and I think uh, a lot more instability is uh, around the corner. Aswande Armir, uh, you on Khan, is this going to be good, bad, or just plain ugly? So I'm going to disagree with both the esteemed panelists. Uh, I think uh, Khan's downfall will be, uh, on balance, a good thing for Pakistan's democracy. And the reason I say that is that, you know, I think Khan came to capture over the last decade, perhaps more, the Pakistani military establishment's long-standing desire for a third alternative political force uh, to mainstream political parties in the country. And uh, such a force some gen- generals envisioned, uh, you know, or they appear to have projected, you know, would harmonize Pakistan's traditional national security priorities with discordant domestic politics that they have looked down upon uh, without direct military interference. Which is why, you know, Khan received all this support uh, from successive chiefs of the military and intelligence to essentially build up his his political machine. Um, but the fact that the military is now feeling pressured to distance itself from Khan, uh, that they are, you know, rethinking the Khan model, I think it marks the defeat of that model of interference and manipulation. Uh, which was, uh, I would argue, conceived after the 2008 transition to democracy. So in that sense, uh, I, you know, I think this will, uh, Khan's, if he's ousted, and I think that's a big if, 
but if he is, it will provide an opening. Uh, the opposition is certainly not clean. Uh, the opposition has played games, is partnering with the military in the current moment. But I, I, I suspect that the the near-term scale and intensity of military interference that we saw over the last few years will probably come down uh, and we might have uh, some, you know, a space for, uh, for a new political conversation, some new rules of the game. Uh, the question is, can the, you know, if the opposition can really capitalize on that opening um, and, and there I'm, I, you know, I'm not that optimistic. I think the opposition political parties have some, some real weaknesses, which they may not overcome. So, so there's that. Asfande Armir, Uzair Yunus, and Madhya Afzal, all from Washington, D.C. Thank you for your time. I've heard the weather's turned over there. You guys are getting cherry blossoms out there. I hope to make a trip out soon. Should most definitely come. All right. Well, thank you again for your time and for talking to Asia Stream. Thank you. Thanks, Vajahat, and thanks, everyone. Thanks, Vajahat. Thanks again to our panel. Just prior to publication, the timing of the no-confidence vote against Khan was unclear, but it seems likely to happen within the next week. Khan has encouraged his supporters to come to the capital and protest if the vote doesn't go his way. The opposition has made similar moves. Is this going to be Khan's January 6, 2021 capital riot moment a la Donald Trump? Groups like Human Rights Watch are warning about the potential for violence. The country's largest journalist association has warned that anti-democratic forces, Pakistan speak for the army, will take advantage of the moment and that this could even result in a coup. That's it for Asia Stream this week. As always, I encourage you to head to Nikkei Asia at asia.nikkei.com for in-depth coverage of Pakistan and all things related to Asia. If you enjoy this podcast, please share, subscribe and leave us a review and hopefully a five-star rating. And a reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. Just type in the code ASIASTREAM, all caps, no spaces, at checkout when you visit asia.nikkei.com. This episode was produced by Monica Hunter-Hart and Jack Stone Truett. I'm your host, Waj Khan. We'll be back like a stream come true next week.